Chapter Twenty Three of Brigands of the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Brigands of the Moon by Ray Cummings. Chapter Twenty Three. Try it again, Snap urged. Good God, Johnny, we've got to raise some Earth station. Chance it. Use the power. Run it up full. Chance it. We were gathered in Grantline's instrument room. The duty man, with blanched, grim face, sat at his senders. The Grantline crew shoved close around us. There were very few observers in the high-powered earth stations who knew that an exploring party was on the moon. Perhaps none of them. The government officials who had sanctioned the expedition, and Halsey and his confreres in the detective bureau, were not anticipating trouble at this point. The planetara was supposed to be well on her course to Ferrok Shan. It was when she was due to return that Halsey would be alert. Grantline used his power far beyond the limits of safety. He cut down the lights. The telescope intensifiers and television were completely disconnected. The ventilators were momentarily stilled, so that the air here in the little room crowded with men rapidly grew fetid, all to save power pressure that the vital errant system might survive. Even so, it was strained to the danger point. Our heat was radiating away. The deadly chill of space crept in. Again, ordered Grantline. The duty man flung on the power in rhythmic pulses. In the silence, the tubes hissed. The light sprang through the banks of rotating prisms, intensified up the scale until, with a vague, almost invisible beam, it left the last swaying mirror and leapt through our overhead dome and into space. Enough, said Grantline. Switch it off. We'll let it go at that for now. It seemed that every man in the room had been holding his breath in the chill darkness. The lights came on again. The errands motors accelerated to normal. The strain on the walls eased up, and the room began warming. Had the earth caught our signal? We did not want to waste the power to find out. Our receivers were disconnected. If an answering signal came, we could not know it. One of the men said, Let's assume they read us. He laughed, but it was a high-pitched, tense laugh. We don't dare even use the telescope or television or electron radio. Our rescue ship might be right overhead, visible to the naked eye, before we see it. Three days more, that's what I'll give it. But the three days passed, and no rescue ship came. The earth was almost at the full. We tried signaling again. Perhaps it got through. We did not know. But our power was weaker now. The wall of one of the rooms sprang a leak, and the men were hours repairing it. I did not say so, but never once did I feel that our signals were read on earth. Those cursed clouds, the earth almost everywhere, seemed to have poor visibility. Four of our eight days of grace were all too soon passed. The brigand ship must be halfway here by now. They were busy days for us. If we could have captured Miko and his band, our danger would have been less imminent. With the treasure insulated and our camp in darkness, the arriving brigand ship might never find us. But Miko knew our location. He would signal his oncoming ship when it was close and lead it to us. During those three days and the days which followed them, Grantline sent out searching parties. But it was unavailing. Miko, Moa, and Coniston 
with their five underlings, could not be found. We had at first hoped that the brigands might have perished, but that was soon dispelled. I went about the third day with the party that was sent to the Planetara. We wanted to salvage some of its equipment, its unbroken power units, and Snap and I had worked out an idea which we thought might be of service. We needed some of the Planetara's smaller gravity plate sections. Those in Grantline's wrecked little comet had stood so long that their radiations had gone dead, but the Planetara's were still working. Our hope that Miko might have perished was dashed. He too had returned to the Planetara. The evidence was clear before us. The vessel was stripped of all of its power units, save those which were dead and useless. The last of the food and water stores were taken, the weapons in the chart room, the Benson curve lights, projectors, and heat rays had vanished. Other days passed. Earth reached the full and was waning. The fourteen-day lunar night was in its last half. No rescue ship came from Earth. We had ceased our efforts to signal, for we needed all our power to maintain ourselves. The camp would be in a state of siege before long. That was the best we could hope for. We had a few short-range weapons, such as Benson's, heat rays, and projectors. A few hundred feet of effective range was the most any of them could obtain. The heat rays, in giant form one of the most deadly weapons on Earth, were only slowly efficacious on the airless moon. Striking an intensely cold surface, their warming radiations were slow to act. Even in a blasting heat beam, a man in his Arendt's helmet suit could withstand the ray for several minutes. We were, however, well equipped with explosives. Grantline had brought a large supply for his mining operations, and much of it was still unused. We had, also, an ample stock of oxygen fuses and a variety of oxygen light flares in small, fragile glass globes. It was to use these explosives against the brigands that Snap and I were working out our scheme with the gravity plates. The brigand ship would come with giant projectors and some thirty men. If we could hold out against them for a time, the fact that the Planetara was missing would bring us help from Earth. Another day, a tenseness was upon all of us, despite the absorption of our feverish activities. To conserve power, the camp was almost dark. We lived in dim, chill rooms, with just a few weak spots of light outside to mark the watchmen on their rounds. We did not use the telescope, but there was scarcely an hour when one or the other of the men was not sitting on a crosspiece up in the dome of the little instrument room, casting a tense, searching gaze through his glasses into the black, starry firmament. A ship might appear at any time now, a rescue ship from Earth, or the brigands from Mars. Anita and Venza, through these days, could aid us very little, save by their cheering words. They moved about the rooms, trying to inspire us, so that all the men, when they might have been humanly sullen and cursing their fate, were turned to grim activity or grim laughter, making a joke of the coming siege. The morale of the camp now was perfect, an improvement indeed over the inactivity of their former peaceful weeks. Grantline mentioned it to me. We'll put up a good fight, Haljan. These fellows from Mars will know they've had a task before they ever sail off with the treasure. I had many moments alone with Anita. I need not mention them. It seemed that our love was crossed by the stars, with an adverse fate dooming it. And Snap and Venza must have felt the same. Among the men we were always quietly, grimly active. But alone, 
I came upon Snap once with his arms around the little Venus girl. I heard him say, Accursed luck that you and I should find each other too late, Venza. We could have had a lot of fun in greater New York together. Snap, we will. As I turned away, I murmured, And pray God, so will Anita and I. The girls slept together in a small room of the main building. Often during the time of sleep, when the camp was stilled except for the night watch, Snap and I would sit in the corridor near the girls' door, talking of that time when we would all be back on our blessed earth. Our eight days of grace were past. The brigand ship was due. Now, tomorrow, or the next day. I recall, that night, my sleep was fitfully uneasy. Snap and I had a cubby together. We talked and made futile plans. I went to sleep, but awakened after a few hours. Impending disaster lay heavily upon me, but there was nothing abnormal nor unusual in that. Snap was asleep. I was restless, but I did not have the heart to awaken him. He needed what little repose he could get. I dressed, left our cubby, and wandered out into the corridor of the main building. It was cold in the corridor, and gloomy with the weak blue light. An interior watchman passed me. All as usual, Haljan. Nothing in sight? No, they're watching. I went through the connecting corridor to the adjacent building. In the instrument room, several of the men were gathered, scanning the vault overhead. Nothing, Haljan. I stayed with them a while, then wandered away. An outside man met me near the admission lock chambers of the main building. The duty man here sat at his controls, raising the air pressure in the locks through which the outside watchman was coming. The relief sat here in his bloated suit, with his helmet on his knees. It was Wilkes. Nothing yet, Haljan. I'm going up to the peak of the crater to see if anything is in sight. I wish that damnable brigand ship would come and get it over with. Instinctively, we all spoke in half-whispers, the tenseness bearing in on us. The outside man was white and grim, but he grinned at Wilkes. He tried the familiar jest. Don't let the earthlight get you. Wilkes went out through the ports a process of no more than a minute. I wandered away again through the corridors. I suppose it was half an hour later that I chanced to be gazing through a corridor window. The lights along the rocky cliff were tiny blue spots. The head of the stairway leading down to the abyss of the crater floor was visible. The bloated figure of Wilkes was just coming up. I watched him for a moment making his rounds. He did not stop to inspect the lights. That was routine. I thought it odd that he passed them. Another minute passed. The figure of Wilkes went with slow bounds over toward the back of the ledge where the glassite shelter housed the treasure. It was all dark off there. Wilkes went into the gloom, but before I lost sight of him, he came back, as though he had changed his mind. He headed for the foot of the staircase, which led up the cliff to where, at the peak of the little crater, five hundred feet above us, the narrow observatory was perched. He climbed with easy bounds, the light on his helmet bobbing in the gloom. I stood watching. I could not tell why there seemed to be something queer about Wilkes's actions, but I was struck with it nevertheless. I watched him disappear over the summit. Another minute went by. Wilkes did not reappear. I thought I could make out his light on the platform up there. Then abruptly a tiny white beam was waving from the observatory platform. It flashed once or twice then was extinguished, and now I saw Wilkes plainly, standing in the earthlight, 
gazing down. Queer actions. Had the earthlight touched him, or was that a local signal call which he had sent out? Why should Wilkes be signaling? What was he doing with a hand helio? Our watchman, I knew, had no reason to carry one. And to whom could Wilkes be signaling? To whom across this lunar desolation? The answer stabbed at me. To Miko's band. I waited less than a moment. No further light. Wilkes was still up there. I went back to the lock entrance. Spare helmets and suits were here beside the keeper. He gazed at me inquiringly. I'm going out, Frank, just for a minute. It struck me that perhaps I was a meddlesome fool. Wilkes, of all of Grantline's men, was, I knew, most in his commander's trust. The signal could have been some part of his night's ordinary routine, for all I knew. I was hastily donning an Erenth suit. I added, let me out. I just got the idea Wilkes is acting strangely. I laughed. Maybe the earthlight has touched him. With my helmet on, I went through the locks. Once outside, with the outer panel closed behind me, I dropped the weights from my belt and shoes and extinguished my helmet light. Wilkes was still up there. Apparently he had not moved. I bounded off across the ledge to the foot of the ascending stairs. Did Wilkes see me coming? I could not tell. As I approached the stairs, the platform was cut off from my line of vision. I mounted with bounding leaps. In my flexible gloved hand, I carried my only weapon, a small projector with firing caps, for use in this outside near vacuum. I held the weapon behind me. I would talk to Wilkes first. I went slowly up the last hundred feet. Was Wilkes still up there? The summit was bathed in earthlight. The little metal observatory platform came into view above my head. Wilkes was not there. Then I saw him standing on the rocks nearby, motionless but in a moment he saw me coming. I waved my left hand with a gesture of greeting. It seemed to me that he started, made as though to leap away, then changed his mind. I sailed from the head of the staircase with a twenty-foot leap and landed lightly beside him. I gripped his arm for audiophone contact. Wilkes! Through my visor his face was visible. I saw him and he saw me. And I heard his voice. You, Haljan, how nice. It was not Wilkes, but the brigand Coniston. End of chapter 23